Well, we are thrilled that you're here today. I hope you're going to stay with us, have some fun right after the service and the car show. But you know, Memorial Day is not just a day for barbecues. Having a Memorial Day is a time when the nation remembers those that have given their lives so that we might be free. I read a statistic today that since uh, 1775, the Revolutionary War, an average of 15 Americans per day have given their lives so we could be free. Think about that. You'd think about the million people that lost their lives for our freedom, 15 a day. But here's something that shocked me even more. This year, if current trends continue, 509 Christians will be martyred every day around the world for Christ. And that's hard to imagine in America today, but the persecution that goes on around our world today, uh, uh, people are losing their lives, 509 people a day. Think about this, from the time you went to sleep last night, from the time you'll go to bed tonight, 500 believers, uh, perhaps 40% more than, or 30% more than are in this room today, will literally go to heaven to be with the Lord simply because they're Christians. I mean, no, we live in a pretty tough world, but that's what we do. We endeavor to try to help as many people get to heaven as we can. That's the mission and the ministry of the church. So we're delighted that you're here today. I want to encourage you. How many are from Texas? Let me see your hand here. I'm, you're a Texan. I hope that if you haven't voted, I hope you will vote on Tuesday. It is a great opportunity for you and I to have an influence or a voice in our culture. Uh, the staff, the staff guys and I on Friday, we got us a hamburger and uh, we went and early voted. But to, uh, Tuesday is your big day in your bulletin. There's an insert that will really help you. I've looked at the site. It's called freevotersguide.com. Uh, you can click on Texas and you'll see a lot of good background information. It's nonpartisan and uh, be very educational for you. We've also got some more information on a table in the lobby. They'll actually show you what's going to be on the ballot, Democrat or Republican. You can pick that up after church in the lobby, but I hope that you will exercise your right and, uh, and join us and let our voice be heard. Praise the Lord. Say it one more time. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Well, we're going to continue our worship this morning with our morning offering. And uh, I'm going to read a scripture to you. It's from the book of Malachi. Malachi was the last book of the Old Testament, and his words were very simple. Malachi told the believers, the Israelite people, to bring a tithe into the storehouse that there might be food in my house. Now, in their day, it was an agriculture society, and literally, if you can imagine coming to church, and you, you would bring some, some sheep, some lambs, you would bring some grain, and uh, you would bring it to the house of the Lord. It was a tenth of what God gave you, and its purpose was literally for food. Uh, it would feed the priests and the Levites, and in a very similar way today, what we do when you give your tithe or offerings in our church, we turn your money into ministry. Let me say it again, because everybody has, has hearts of compassion and you want to help people, but it seems sometimes like, what can my little bit do? Let me tell you some things that we do in our church beyond just what you see. I mean, right now we're remodeling our stage. Uh, give us a couple weeks on it. I think you're really going to like it. That's going to help us pick up in about 60 or 70 more chairs for more people here, here in what we're doing. But what you don't often see is what we do in the community and around the world. What we do, just like we ask you to tithe, we tithe as a church. We take 13% of your undesignated giving, and we do things with it to reach people around the world. Let me tell you some pretty neat things. We just sent uh, over $1,500 to Haiti to feed children. 50 cents a day, if you can imagine that, you can give a kid a good, healthy meal. It'll be the best meal they got. They have 19 different feeding locations. Uh, several weeks ago, we sent over $1,200 to train pastors in Laos. You know, the same place, the Vietnam War, that whole part of the world, underground pastors. Uh, we sent $2,500 uh, to, for a Bible school construction for Native Americans in Oklahoma. Uh, we bought a motorcycle for a pastor in Kenya, a little over $1,000. 
And in Mexico, we've committed to one of our ministries in southern Mexico, where the Indians, the Mayan Chamula Indians are, that every time they build a church, we'll buy a Bible in their language for every family that's there, and we'll feed every family there that's there. We just sent almost $500 for two churches there. Uh, you remember the, when Pastor Kaya was here about the Syrian refugees? You remember what's going on there right now, the crisis that's there? They're migrating from Syria into Turkey. Well, they have these, uh, these houses, and what they're doing is they're going to train Christians that are going to go back in Syria. His goal was to raise $12,000. We added to your giving another almost $5,000 to help them fund that house for a year. Now, how many know these are things that are helping people not only here, but around the world? And how many know that's the great call of the Christian is that we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So we network with people, be they locally or around the world, to make a difference. And I just want to say thank you for your giving. Come on, give Jesus a big hand this morning. He deserves all the praise. Well, listen, God bless you as you prepare to give. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our guest speaker. It's a great privilege today, a perfect day, to have Dr. Rick Scarborough of Vision America with us. Uh, Rick was a pastor, as I am, for many, many years, but uh, he felt God called him to be a pastor to America. Now, how many know America is sick and America is in trouble? Yeah, and he goes all over America and literally calls the church back to her Christian roots. And he's going to say some things today that I guarantee you, if, particularly if you're a younger person that you don't hear in the media, you've not picked up in school, he'll talk about the Christian history of America. Might even step on your toes a little bit, but I encourage you, let me know if you're reading from the Bible or reading from history, maybe we need to adjust ourselves to begin to take on a biblical worldview. So it's going to challenge you today, and I know it'll help you. And Dr. Rick Scarborough will be in just a second. There's going to be a video about Vision America, his ministry, and what they're doing in America. God bless you, and thanks for giving. In 1998, Dr. Rick Scarborough founded Vision America to inform and mobilize pastors and their congregations to become salt and light, becoming proactive in restoring Judeo-Christian values in America. The initial advisory board of Vision America included notable Christian leaders Jerry Falwell, Don Wildman, Tim LaHaye, D. James Kennedy, Adrian Rogers, Tim Lee, and Peter Marshall. Spiritual leaders of our time have noted the effective work being done by Vision America. James Dobson says, Believers in our nation are undertaking many worthy endeavors for the cause of Christ, but nothing I see across the landscape of the local church gives me more hope than the work you are doing through Vision America. Tim LaHaye says, Vision America is an effective organization of pastors and churches helping Christians. I strongly urge every pastor to become a vital part of Vision America. If every Christian in America had a passion for Christ like William Carey, this nation would be transformed overnight. Right now, I want you to meet one man who has just such a passion. Dr. Rick Scarborough is mobilizing pastors nationwide to speak out on the pressing moral issues of our day. Why does a preacher get into politics? Well, in all honesty, it's the last thing most preachers want to do, but we've finally, many of us, awakened to the fact that if we don't get involved, we're going to lose the country. Wherever I speak, I remind the listeners of the role the preachers played. I am a preacher, by the way, a pastor by calling, and I, and I like to illustrate to them how biblical the form of government we have. There is no question about it. God not only gave us this country, but He led the men who founded it to, to build a biblically-based government that the world has received the blessing from for all of these years 
until the last generation. You have to ask yourself the question, what, what next? Uh, are we going to go now and reverse court previous decisions regarding uh, the, the number of people involved in a marriage? Is polygamy next? He's also concerned it could directly affect Texas and the state's legalization of same-sex marriage here. Our God would move mightily. I mean, he would save this country if he found vehicles, hands, feet, mouths uh, in the church that would stand up, speak up, and get the job done. And this is a small but important step toward the beginning of the end of abortion in America. Human decency for the little child in the womb, who at some point, even those on the Supreme Court who made this horrific decision that Pastor Scarborough talked about, recognized that at some point, this little child in the womb has to be given some rights. Well, I'd cite the verse when Paul was standing before the Athenians, and he said, you know, God is made out of many nations, one people. But he said, it is God who establishes boundaries. He, uh, he establishes nations. We have boundaries. Uh, our country was established as a nation built upon laws. And we cannot willy-nilly change the laws to accommodate the present condition. When taking an effective stand on moral issues, the impacts are felt in the local and national media. Vision America's work has been featured in print media including Time Magazine, USA Today, New York Times, Washington Post, Dallas Morning News, Houston Chronicle, Boston Globe, and the Congressional Quarterly. Dr. Scarborough has also appeared on Larry King Live, Fox News, CBS Evening News, The Blaze with Glenn Beck, C-SPAN, National Public Radio, Focus on the Family, and featured in documentaries such as CNN's award-winning special, God's Warriors, and the HBO documentary, Friends of God. Even though these media appearances impact the culture, Pastor Rick still believes that the pastors in the pulpit are God's greatest agent of change. Charles Finney said, if there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the public press lacks moral discernment, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away, say it with me, the pulpit is responsible for it. Vision America continues to work with other Christian organizations across the country to mobilize pastors and their people. They also work with national and state political leaders such as Senator Santorum, Governor Huckabee, Governor Perry, Attorney General Greg Abbott, Lieutenant Governor David Dewhurst, as well as numerous members of national and state Senate and House leadership. In the last 15 years, Vision America's pastor mobilization efforts have reached into Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Florida, South Dakota, Arkansas, Mississippi, Missouri, New Mexico, California, Virginia, and Alabama. Today, the foundations of our nation are crumbling with over 50 million babies aborted and counting, the deconstruction of marriage, sexual anarchy and perversion, the government takeover of our healthcare system, out of control federal spending with our national debt now measured by trillions of dollars, and there's no end in sight. America's on the brink, yet few politicians are willing to address it. Many people have decided that nothing can be done and simply choose to ignore the crisis. In the process of mobilizing the pastors, we discovered a strategy that works. First, find the pastors who get it, 
men who understand their role in saving their country. Second, inform and equip them, give them the tools they need. Third, help them mobilize their congregations to vote their values on election day. Finally, recruit men and women of character to run for local, state, and national office. And may I say the church is the premier place to find such men and women. In 2002, one godly man asked me if this could be done all over Texas. As a result of our conversations, he and a small group of men underwrote the expenses of mobilizing over 2,500 pastors in Texas. The results of the 2002 election in Texas are now a matter of history as Texas has become a model for the nation to follow. Something amazing happened right before my eyes. When godly pastors and godly businessmen come together, they can make a huge difference. I need your help because we have proven that the model of finding those few pastors who will stand, empowering them, and showing them how to mobilize their congregations is the last real hope for turning the country back. I am not content to sit back and do nothing. I have to do this and I'm looking for men and women across this country who understand that and who will invest in helping us do it right. We've got to have the resources to do it right. I'm going to prayerfully ask you now to consider standing with us. Well, if you're unhappy this morning, say amen. A lot of you look unhappy. Now those of you that are happy, say amen. How I many y'all heard what I said the first time? I said, if you're unhappy, say amen, which just proves that our people don't really listen to us anyway, preacher. If I, now that I have your undivided attention, if you're glad to be here as I am, say a hearty praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I'll tell you, I love this church. I love your pastor, his wife. Um, tell you a little story that will bless you because you know what a, an effective communicator uh, Pastor John is. We had a gala down in Lufkin, Texas just about uh, about a year ago, and we had planned for months to, to have a gentleman be our MC. And, uh, man, I was on pins and needles when about five minutes before time to start, people gathered. He wasn't there. And so now it's five minutes after the hour. Uh, I walked back into this, this room with about 300 folks. First one I saw was John Miller. I said, you're the MC." I gave him a microphone and a program. That's, a, that's all the preparation he had. He did a superb job. I got compliments for months about what a great MC we had at that event. I mean, he interjected things along the way that made the, the program flow. We didn't pay him a dime. Cheapest MC I've ever had and the best, Pastor. Superb job, I'll tell you. What a great, what a great man he is. Um, I have with me in this worship hour my wife, and I'll tell you, uh, what a joy she is. We've been married now for 43 years. I uh, fell in love with her 44 years ago. Um, you know, we've birthed three wonderful, God-fearing, Christ-honoring children and buried one. Scripture says that, that uh, if you faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. Well, I can say to you, publicly that the strength of my life is my wife. She has stood by me through thick and thin. She's, she's the quiet partner. If you're married to me, you have to be. I do all the talking typically, but I, I get great strength from her. 
uh, she'll tell you. Well, she probably wouldn't tell you because it'd be a classified information. But when I preach and she's there, the only one I'm concerned with hearing from uh, about how I did is, is my wife. And she knows no matter how bad it is to tell me I did good. Now, that's a wife. Amen? She is, is a great, great source of encouragement. We're on our way to North Carolina. Uh, we, we're going to be doing 25 pastor events across the state over the next two months. On the way, that's Monday through Friday. And then on the weekends, we've got three events each weekend for 10 straight weeks in Florida. So we're going to be living in a 40-foot fifth wheel. It'll be our mobile home for the next uh, two and a half months. And if God will be pleased to honor what we're doing, we will enlist 2,000 pastors like Pastor John who will register their people to vote, encourage them to vote their values, and get them out on Election Day. And you know what happens if that many preachers in the state stand up? The direction of the state changes. Please pray for us. A lot of people are watching what we're doing. Um, you know, our chief funding source is not even a Christian. It's kind of like Artaxerxes and Nehemiah. Uh, he's a, a pragmatist. Uh, he knows the nation's in trouble. He heard about what we're doing. Um, I hope and, that, and pray that someday this gentleman will find Christ. Uh, but uh, he said, you know, if you, can do, if, if you can do what you've done in other states... In North Carolina, we're going to find the money for you to travel to about eight or nine states in the year 2015 uh, and 16 if Jesus tarries. And if we do that and God blesses it, we can see this nation begin to write the course. What's missing is Christian involvement. And we're going to talk more about that as we work our way through the sermon. Would you stand in honor of God's Word? I'm reading today from John chapter, excuse me, from Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34. Take your Bible and uh, turn to that passage, please. You should know it by heart. I think you will when you hear it. And in Proverbs 29, 2, these will be the two texts from which we will speak. Righteousness exalts the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Anybody disagree with that? Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Look at Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation. Excuse me. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked man rules, the people what? And what are we doing as a country today? This is a time of great groaning. Let's pray. Father, in the name of your Son, I ask for fresh anointing. I ask for freshness of voice. I thank you for the joy I have in preaching to this third assembly of a great congregation called Church on the Rock. Father, I have no question and no doubt about the rock, but Lord, I pray we would be the church, that we would be the called out ones ready to take the assignment granted to us so that this church on the rock would be a lighthouse not only today, but for many years to come should you tarry. Lord, bless us as we gather today. I want all of you who are standing to pray this prayer after me. Let me pray it first, and then you pray it out loud. Lord Jesus, speak to my heart this morning. Let's all pray aloud. Lord Jesus, speak to my heart this morning. Father, I'm no fool. I know that the people came to hear from Jesus, not me. So let me step aside, preach in such a way that Jesus be glorified and his word be lifted up. And I pray that you would honor that prayer. We all pray it in Jesus' name. Let's say it together. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, this nation, without question, was founded by 
Christian people. There were exceptions to that rule. Not everybody that came to America was a Christian. But there cannot be a question about who it was that was calling the shots. And God honored this country. A common heritage, a common worldview, underscored and predicated by the Word of God. You know, during the Civil War era, there was one liberated and well-educated black man by the name of Frederick Douglass. With a broken heart, he prayed for the emancipation of all slaves. Listen to the words of Frederick Douglass on one occasion. He said, I prayed and I prayed. Then I stood up and God answered my prayers. How many of you are praying for America and for revival? Raise your hand. Well, it's time to stand up and get this country back, folks. It's time, knowing that it's God's will that America experience renewal and revival. We don't have to wonder about that. We don't have to say, God, do you want to revive America? Of course he does. But the Bible says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, he said, then I'll hear from heaven. Then I'll forgive their sin, and then I'll heal their land. And what we're going to talk about now for the next 30 minutes is an American healing but to understand where we are, we've got to understand how we got here. And we've got to understand who we were. We live in a generation co completely cut off from its own history. And that's by design. There are those who are right now ruling the halls of Congress, leading this country in business and out of business, in government and out of government, who do not want you to understand what a, the foundation of our nation Hence, our school children are absolutely in the dark when it comes to some basic education that I want to share with you this morning. I'm going to lean heavily on this book, a book I wrote originally in 1996 with a broken heart. I had a group of laymen who knew I wanted to write a book, and I'd been amassing materials for a book, walk in my office on a Sunday morning and say, Preacher, we don't want to see your face for one month. Well, that'll, that'll, that'll unnerve you as a pastor. Uh, those laymen had already begun making provision for guest preachers unbeknown to me. And they told me that the only requirement was I couldn't preach a single sermon. They knew if I was off a month, I'd preach somewhere every Sunday. They said, we want you to keep your mouth shut, go to worship if you like, but get away from here and write that book. Because I'd been preaching a series and talking about it. I had a stack of materials that high. Out of that 30-day period of prayer, fasting, and writing came 300 and some odd pages of handwritten manuscript that became a best-selling book in 1996 called Enough is Enough. I knew it was a bestseller when I was walking through an airport one day and even heard a mother shouting to her twin children, Enough is Enough. I said, my word, even kids are reading this book. Haven't you at some time or other said enough is enough? Well, I'm telling you, enough was enough. And there's a whole story about how my wife and I finally decided enough was enough in Pearland, Texas, where we were then senior pastor. But I want to talk to you, and I want to read some. You know, this book was rewritten four years ago. Uh, a Christian gentleman uh, who owns a publishing house, Steve Strang, Strang Communications, he read the original version dated by that time, and he said, Preacher, if you'll rewrite the book, I'll pay you to do it. Well, Nobody paid me to write the first one. That was a delight. I mean, I'm telling you, uh, get paid for doing something you love. So I isolated myself and rewrote the book in 2008, updated it to the issues we're facing today. The original story, uh, the, the opening chapter was 
that uh, Bill Clinton was wake-up call. That was 1996. In 2008, 911 was our wake-up call. How many more wake-up calls are we going to need, ladies and gentlemen, before we realize that it's now or never? I'm telling you, God is shaking this country. The Bible says a day will come when everything that can be shaken will be shaken. For a country, we're there. Nothing is sacred. We don't even know men from women anymore. In the city of Houston right now, there's an uproar. The city, the lesbian mayor of the city is demanding that businesses allow men who want to think for a day they're women to come into locker rooms, and if you refuse them the right to the women's locker room, you can lose your license and be fined. There's an uproar. There's an outcry. The churches are galvanizing. But you know what? It was up for a vote 10 days ago, and all they did was table it for another week. They're going to vote on it this coming Tuesday, and it looks like the fix is in. And we're going to find a, a very shortly in another city that you're a criminal for simply believing a man is a man and a woman is a woman. We're absolutely losing our mind as a nation. Go to court after court. We vote as a people. The defense of marriage law. So all across the country, if your state believes a man is a man and a woman is a woman and they ought to marry each other and not men with men and women with women, we can pass constitutional amendments. The people spoke 37 states or 36 states passed a constitutional amendment just to protect marriage. And a president looks at the chief law enforcement officer of the country and says, don't enforce those laws. A letter goes out to every uh, every state attorney general and says, if you don't like that law, just skip it. And the law means nothing. We're living in an insane age. But you want to know why it's like it is? Because you and I come to church, we sing, we pray, and we even cry. But we won't even show up and vote. We're not even showing up and voting. Oh, well, preacher, that's not true here. I promise you, you run the rolls of this church. You can find out of the county records who votes and who don't, and it'll shock you the number of people in this church who don't even show up. In the average church across America, 75% of the members who are evangelical, self-identified evangelical Christians are not even registered or voting on elections for presidents. And when it comes to a runoff in a state election like we're facing Tuesday, it gets down to less than 10%, in some cases 3 to 5%. Now, you want to know why? A very small minority of lesbians, gays, transsexual, bisexual, and confused people are running this country? Because they show up. Just as simple as that. Pastor, come up here and pray for me. I am cramping so much I can barely stand. Too much activity. <clears throat> I'm telling you, I got a knot in, my, in, my, in both of my sides. It's just seizing up. I may need to have to sit down here a minute. What I need to do is slow down. You know, I feel this sometimes, too, for the burden of our nation. You know, it's not just preaching a sermon, but how many know that there's spiritual warfare in the world we face? It's real. And when you speak into things, I mean, it's almost like you're afraid to talk about some things in America today. It's almost like you're afraid to talk about the child that's in the womb. It's almost like you're afraid to talk about the, the relationship of a man and a woman, come on, in marriage. So th 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 these are spiritual forces that are behind us in America today. It's not just a guy ranting. 
It's everything that we've, we've, we've taken for granted in America, the freedom of America, the most prosperous nation in the world, the safety, the ability to say anything and do anything and work anywhere and, and build a life. We see it all shifting before us. A nation that started out as a nation where men could be free and women could be free to pursue their dreams is now there was a Democratic congressman this week that openly came out and said communism is working in America through our immigration policies. It's like our nation is changing. So as you're listening today, you're not listening to a lecture in a college or you're not listening to someone dialogue about a book or man's opinions, but we're talking about the Bible and Christian history, and there's a spiritual component that goes with this. Lift your hand towards my brother today. Father, we just pray for Rick today. I just pray that the Holy Spirit would come on him. I just pray that the physical affliction would leave him, and I pray that you would fill him afresh with the Holy Spirit. I just pray for the power of God flows through him, Lord, and we just bless him today in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. If you want the stool, I sit on it, actually. It's pretty cool. <laughs> well, my, my father and I both are prone to cramping. I've never had to come on me like that when I'm preaching, have a Tommy. So anyway, uh, maybe he'll quit. I was flying, I, I'm a pilot. I was flying an airplane with five of the guys one, one night, one afternoon. We'd, uh, I'd used the plane to take them to play a church softball game. We played five games in a day. I'm the only pilot on board. I'm flying back to Nacogdoches, and I started cramping from head to foot. Had to put the plane on autopilot, lay flat. You couldn't stand up, so I had to lay flat on the floor. You talk about some guys praying. Now, they did some praying. But it passed. So maybe I won't have to lay down, but it's already easing, so thank the Lord. I tell you, my, my, I started tightening up, and some of that is just because of the intensity with, with which I was preaching. Now, how many of y'all remember what I already said? All right, good. We want to recover that. I want to prove to you today that this nation was founded by Christians. You know, uh, when I researched this book, it was a, I used David Barton materials, a whole lot of others, uh, Peter Marshall, and I was amazed. You know, I grew up in a different era where we at least still told the truth at our schools. But even I had never heard all this. I want you just to, to understand how it all began, where this whole nation started. In 1644, a courageous Presbyterian minister defied all of Europe by writing a book saying that the king was under the law just like everybody else. Uh, the divine right of kings, have you ever heard that expression? The divine right of kings was a lie perpetrated in a day when there were kings that said whatever the king says is right. It's kind of like uh, somebody believing that a pope cannot, make a, cannot sin. Now, I don't mean to pick on anybody, but folks, let me tell you what. We have a sin nature. A pastor's sin. Uh, I sin. You, we need a Savior because of that. And there's no such thing as anybody at any level being sinless. But all over Europe, they believed in the divine right of kings. They could not be held accountable. And so a courageous Lutheran minister wrote a book entitled Lex Rex, immediately defying that principle. In 1644, Lex Rex asserted the premise that all law must be biblically based. Rutherford proposed that God's holy word was the foundation of truth, and all men, including the king, were under the law. Rutherford's ideas had great influence on subsequent generations. Now, one of the men who studied what he had to write was another preacher, the Reverend Samuel Rutherford, the only ordained minister who signed the Declaration of Independence. By the way, the Declaration of Independence was a death warrant. King 
the king of England said, if you sign a document like this, you're in defiance of my law, you die. If we had time, I could show you how all 56 signers suffered, some of them immeasurably, in some cases losing their entire family, many of them their properties, because the first thing the British soldiers did was go where the signers lived and burn down their houses, their churches, round them up. Uh, some of these men saw their whole families destroyed. But they believed what Lex Rex taught. They wrote a declaration of independence based upon the premise. Uh, that particular signer was John Witherspoon, a Presbyterian minister who was educated at Edinburgh. Reverend Witherspoon was the only clergyman to sign the declaration. Here's what he, what he, what he did in the course of his life. He became the first president of Princeton University, then known as New Jersey College. Listen to who he educated. In the course of his, of his leadership of that school, there were 500 graduates. 11% of them became presidents of other colleges. James Madison, known as the father of the Constitution, was his most notable student. Witherspoon taught a vice president, 21 senators, 39 representatives, 56 legislators, 33 judges, three of whom became members of the United States Supreme Court. He taught them that all true law was based upon the Bible. Now, their influence, in turn, recognizing the truth, they founded colleges. The first 10 colleges founded in this country, you'll recognize, but you won't recognize. Let me read you the list of the first 10 colleges and tell you the origins of those colleges. We now call them Ivy League schools. 1636, Harvard was founded by a preacher by the name of John Harvard for the purpose of training the clergy. He was a Puritan. It was founded in Massachusetts. 1693, William and Mary was founded by Anglicans to train their ministers. In 1701, Yale was founded in Connecticut by the Congregationalist. In 1746, Princeton founded in New Jersey by the Presbyterians. In 1754, King's College in New York founded by the Anglicans, all of these to train the clergy. The clergy started the schools in their churches, and they had to be educated. In 1764, Brown University, Rhode Island, by Baptist. In 1766, Rutgers in New Jersey by the Dutch Reformed Church. And in 1769, Dartmouth in New Hampshire by the Congregationalists. The first 10 universities in America had one common goal, train the clergy to think biblically so they could start the churches or in their churches, the schools, to educate the children. And did they educate the children? The primer for the elementary age children for more than 100 years had the following understanding of how to learn to spell. They were indoctrinating those children to think biblically. Let me read you from the original primer just a few of the uh, letters of the alphabet. All right? Here's your ABCs today, children. A stands for Adam. And here was the sentence that they learned. Ad A, in Adam's fall, we send all. Well, that's interesting. B, the life to mend this book will attend. C, for sinners died, Christ crucified. Now, what do you think would happen in America if every elementary school in America taught children to think like that. 
You wouldn't have to have drug-sniffing dogs. You wouldn't have to have metal detectors and barbed wire. You wouldn't have to have police patrolling the halls. But you know, we're smarter today. We don't need the Bible. We're going to have enough militia. Well, if not enough militia, we'll have drones in the sky, and we'll just take out those few remaining Christians. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Um, the founders said, you know what? If we're going to have a nation, we better have a mission statement. This church has a mission statement. My ministry has a mission statement. It's a, it's a simple little phrase that describes the parameters of what our goal for ministry is. You know what the mission statement for America was? The Declaration of Independence. And here's what they said. Now, mind you, all over Europe, the king was the king. But here's what they said. They said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Now, folks, you know what it means to be self-evident? Any buffoon can get it. You can't miss this one. I mean, if you wake up in the morning and you see a nose, it's a nose. Self-evident. Well, not so self-evident today. Here's what they said. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men were what? Uh, they didn't birth out of a primordial slime. They didn't explode in a big bang. They were created. That presupposes what? We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created how? Equal. Well, you know, they didn't get it right. In order to form 13 colonies in a united effort, some of those colonies had embraced slavery, so they compromised. That's what politics is. But they eventually got it right. Most of the states, even in the, in the early stages, abhorred slavery. They were willing to die to bring an end to what they knew to be morally wrong. Because you know what? It's self-evident. All men are created equal. Now, it took people without a Bible mind to come up and conceive with the whole idea that, well, when you're black, you're only three-fifths human. That's what the Supreme Court that always tells us how to live, that's the conclusion they came to. Well, that was so insulting. There was a war that ensued and 600,000 people died and a million or more men walked around for a generation without arms and legs. Because some things are just self-evident. It is self-evident that a baby has a right to life. And, uh, you know, because we ignored that, it took the ability to see inside a baby's or uh, the womb of a mother and see a 14 or 15-day-old child sucking its thumb to realize that, hey, that is a life. By the way, that's why you have to kill it. It's a life. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator, not the government, not the king, creator with certain inalienable rights among which are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Folks, this was the founding of this country. They said, you know, now that God has intervened and we have secured our freedom, we've got to have a government. When a church forms, there has to be a government. We have to decide what the rules are, how we're going to be based, who's going to lead the worship, how do we have Bible education. When a marriage is formed, you have to have government. The husband is the head of the, of the house. The wife is his helpmeet, uh, co-equal in many ways. 
women superior in some ways. But you know what? Every single grouping of two or more has to have someone in authority, someone under authority. It's like riding a horse. You can't do it side by side. Finally, somebody has to make a final decision. So God instituted the family. Husband is the head of the, of the wife, but he's to love the wife as Christ loved the church. That takes away all, the dis, all of the dysfunction when a man loves a woman as Christ loves the church. And my cramps have gone away, preacher, so thanks. So they had to form a government. Well, what kind of government are we going to form? They looked at all the governments of the world, and they said, you know, none of them really make sense. All of them get off track because they said, Bible thinking, man has a sinful nature. So there's going to have to be some way to check and balance. So one of the men came up with Isaiah 33:22. Isaiah 33:22 says, God is our judge, hmm, judiciary. God is our lawgiver, hmm, legislative. God is our king. Hey, executive branch. But then the verse finishes by saying, it is God who will save us. They understood that God was the only hope for a nation. But in order to function as a nation, there needed to be three separate branches because if you invest all the power in one branch, the, the, that, the, the nation will get off track. And you know what? For 200 years, it worked superbly until the courts became an oligarchy, began to rise up as if they knew everything, and the people, we, allowed them to start saying, well, you can't pray. You can't read a Bible in public schools. And in their infinite wisdom, they said, you know, you can't post the Ten Commandments. Somebody might read them. And if they practice them, that's mixing church and state. And instead of rising up to do something about it, we just acquiesced. So in 2002, in Lawrence versus Texas, six members of the Supreme Court said, you can't have a law saying that sodomy is wrong. By the way, Antonin Scalia, in his dissent, and you need to read it, it's a prophetic word. He said, if, he said, for the first time, the courts are siding on a political issue as opposed to ruling what the Constitution says. And he said, this is opening the door to every aberrant behavior known to man. Well, now the state of Washington allows men to have sex with animals. Polygamy is next to fall. I mean, what's to keep a man from having three wives or a woman from having three husbands or any mixture thereof? I mean, if you don't have a Bible base, who's going to make the rules? Well, we've decided let men who profess themselves to be wise, but in fact they're leading us down a road to being nothing but fools. They set up a government, and they said, you know, there's going to be pockets of large numbers of people in some rural areas. So we've got to mitigate how we administer the government. So they looked at the Bible, and they saw Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses. By the way, Jethro was a black man. All this discussion about interracial marriage and all of that, you know, get over it. He had a black father-in-law. It means he had a black wife. God looks at people, not races. We are the human race. 
And so this wise black man watching Moses trying to administrate two million people, he said, this is going to kill you. And besides, you're not always going to be right. So he said, let me give you a solution. And he said these words. He said, select from all the people capable men. Rule number one, when you pick a leader, don't be foolish. Not just anybody can run a country or run a state or run a county. Uh, the Tea Party, with all of its good, uh, also showed us that not just anybody can run a country. Find capable men who fear God. You find men that fear God and you won't have to have somebody checking them up on all the time because God will take care of that. Fear God who cannot be bought. Well, there goes the lobbyist because a man who fears God who cannot be bought is not going to have his vote swayed because somebody flew him in a jet. And then he said, appoint them over thousands, federal government. Hundreds, state government. Fifties, county government. Tens, local municipalities. And those founders took that verse and conceived of the delineation of powers we know as federal, state, county, and local governance. And that's how this country was built, based upon the Word of God. You know, they said, you know, over in England and France, the king runs the church. In fact, in England, the king was the head of the church. They said, this ain't a good plan. The king paid the salaries of the clergy. So you know what? The clergy came up with some incredibly weird ideas about what was right and wrong. In fact, you could even pay them enough money and have all your sins forgiven. So rich people could have adultery and licentious lifestyles and still be righteous because they paid for their indulgences. So our founder said, that's no way to run a church. So how are we going to have a free church? Well, I'll tell you, here's what I want to say. Look what Ezra 7.24 says. Ezra 7.24 says that the king has no authority to tax the ministers of the gospel, the preachers, the singers, those who tend to the house of God. They're exempted for their taxes. Our founding fathers said, here's the solution. Let everybody choose their own pastor, choose their own church affiliation, and whatever money they give to that church, we won't tax it, and therefore the church is completely free. Churches are tax-exempt, not because there's an IRS handing out C-3s. It is that we're tax-exempt because the Constitution endowed the churches with an exemption from any taxes so they would be free, free, free. You go back to Thomas Road Baptist Church, one of the biggest, most powerful churches our country has ever known. Founded by Jerry Falwell, pastored now by his son that's double the size of the church. They've given over a, over a billion dollars in tithes and offerings to that congregation through the years. And they've never, ever had a C3 status bestowed on them by the IRS. They're tax exempt because they're a church and the Constitution granted that freedom. We need to understand, folks, we don't account to the IRS or anyone. We're free, at least temporarily. But you see, increasingly there's a hostility on anything, Christian, because increasingly people are divorcing themselves from the church and anything in it. And now people driving by here says, what a waste. 
In fact, the Kelo decision by the infinite Supreme Court said you can take away a church property if it can produce more taxes, give it to a taxi, taxing entity, and just relocate those congregations. And it's happening by the thousands across this country. And you want to know why that's happening? Those kinds of insanities, why our children have no clue who they are, our, our schools won't even let, a, let you carry a Bible inside now. Nobody can pray. You can't post the Ten Commandments. Do you know why that's happening? Because the church doesn't participate. We're not even showing up. 50% of those who self-identify as evangelicals are not even registered to vote. Of the 50% who are, in a presidential year, only half of them vote. In an off-year election, it gets down to less than 10%. If you vote Tuesday, Texans, your vote will count 10 times because 90% of the people won't even bother. And somehow we can't even get Christians to do that. I'll tell you something, folks. You have a dual citizenship, whether you know it or not. For some reason, God saved you in America. In America where we've had freedom for all these years that's now quite rapidly eroding, if you're not going to vote or participate, then why didn't God let you get saved in the Sudan where they're losing their life for their faith? Who are we to think we can just sit back and do nothing? God forbid and God forgive us. It's time now for the church to rise up and be the church. It's now while we still have time, while there is light, let's get it done. Let's be the Frederick Douglasses. Let's get off our knees and do what we can, where we can, when we can, for as long as we can. It's time for us to select among ourselves capable men who cannot be bought. You say, one reason I don't vote is because there's no good men to vote for. Then run. Run. I'm telling you, there ought to be in every church a committee diagnosing who the men are and the women are who've paid their dues, who've gained a, a certain amount of understanding and encourage those people to run. You know, some of the people say, well, it costs too much money to run. Let me tell you something. Money doesn't vote. People vote. If churches turned out, it wouldn't take so much money. We found out in Pearland that we could swing Local school board elections, if our 3,000-member church just showed up. We found out that we could impact county government, city government. And when we got 400 pastors together in Harris County, we changed the direction of a whole county. If only the preachers and the people would understand that we have freedom, but we're losing it because we sleep through the battle. So my word to you today, folks, is, it's time to stand up. It's time to once again speak out for what you believe. Get yourself educated. We're in a war, folks. Satan's tools are ignorance. There's a whole lot of ignorance in this country about who we are. Some of it's willful ignorance because we don't want to know who we are because if you understand, you'll have to do something. Ignorance, apathy, deceit. Well, my vote doesn't matter. Deceit. It won't make any difference. Deceit. They're all alike. Well, let me tell you something, folks. They're not all alike. I talked to a member of this church last night who is crying because he's, uh, because he's, he's, he's battling an uphill system on both sides that's just plain corrupt. 
but he's trying. Are you trying? Are you trying? Folks, it's not enough to wish or pray. We got to act. Final thing I want you to hear. Satan's tools are ignorance, apathy, deceit, persecution. I meet Christians every day who say, oh, well, Jesus is going to come before it really gets bad. And I get, I get so angry, my wife has to pull me back. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't take it so well. Because that reflects that we have an American view of the Bible, that somehow in America we're going to escape persecution, when right now in the Middle East, thanks to the Arab Spring, Christians are being beheaded for simple professions of faith. They're being locked up. They're being sawed asunder. The persecution, as your pastor said, 500 people every day are dying. Do we, are we so arrogant that we think before it gets bad in America, Jesus is going to come? He may leave us here 30 more years to live in the nation that we built by our apathy and our ignorance. But, you know, the reverse is we have revival in America. It'll touch the whole world. We have revival at Church in the Rock. It'll touch the other churches. Folks, the revival that God wants is just our obedience away. And we're better than in a church that has a pastor who gets it and a nucleus of people who understand it. Those of you that have been sitting on the sidelines, get on board. The revival just might break out in Church on the Rock. If my people, called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and Seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their what? Beloved, it starts right here. Let's pray. Father, it's Memorial Day. Millions of Americans have died so we could be here. Lord God, you've given us this day, another grace day. Let it be a day of repentance. Let it be a day of new beginnings. For those in this room who are lost and undone, may this be the day of their salvation. For those who used to walk with you but walked away, may this be the day of return. For those, Lord, who've been living in ignorance, may it be a day when they determine, I'm going to get informed. Lord, let today be a day of new beginnings. Heads bowed, eyes closed. If you would say, preacher, I used to walk with God, but somewhere along the way I walked away, the joy of my salvation is no longer rich like it was pray for me. If that speaks to where you are spiritually, would you raise your hand real quick? I used to walk with Jesus. Somewhere along the way, I walked away. That love is not rich like it used to be. If there are some here today that say, Preacher, I've never really known the assurance of my salvation. I've never known that if I, for sure if I died, I'd go to heaven. I can't remember ever really selling out to Christ. Pray for me. If that speaks to where you are, would you raise your hand? Thank you. Last question. Pastor, I'm saved. I'm doing the best I can to serve. But I need a church. I need to be a part of a church that encourages me and where I can make my life count. I'm looking for a church. I'm praying about this church. Would you join me in that prayer, folks? Nobody's going to catch you. I'm not going to corner you. I'm not going to talk about you. But I'll sure pray with you about it. If that's where you are, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you and with you? Thank you. Thank you. Now, Lord, there are needs all over the place, some that I've addressed and many that I haven't. Let to be be the day when apathy is turned to service. Lord, bless us on this Memorial Day with a sense of renewal and repentance. In Jesus' name I pray. We're going to stand to our feet. Pastor's going to give direction to the invitation. God is speaking to you. Why don't you make a commitment of selling out to Jesus now, Pastor? Well, let's close this way as we're standing to our feet.
You know, the Bible says don't just be a hearer of the word, but a what? Be a doer. And I just want to open our altars as we sing one song, and then we'll dismiss. I hope you'll stay for the car show, get you a ticket for lunch under the tent out there. But don't you take one second before you go and say, Holy Spirit, are you pulling me towards something? If you're here today and, and you need to make some kind of commitment to Christ, come let us pray for you. Maybe the Holy Spirit's really calling you to do something in service in our nation. I want you to come too. Let us pray for you. But just begin to sing, Pastor. And our prayer team is going to come right now. And uh, I just want to invite you just to come for prayer. Surrendering your life to Christ, committing to Christ, offering yourself to Christian service. Just come let us pray as we sing. I can face tomorrow. Come on, sing it. I know you know it. Because he lives. All fear is gone Because I know He holds the future And life is worth the Barbara, would you just pray for America, for a revival in America, which means a revival in us. Would you just pray this last prayer with us now? God, revive our nation. Father, we have no right, humanly speaking, to ask you to do But because of the blood of Jesus, because you invite us as acceptable in the beloved, we have the privilege of coming to your throne room with boldness. Lord, with boldness, we ask that you renew a right relationship in this nation with yourself. Father, take those in this room who are spiritually sensitive, deepen our love for you. Use us as a catalyst to touch others. Lord, send one more sweeping revival. Father, the first great awakening gave us the birth of a nation. The second great awakening saved us from complete destruction of the civil war. A third great awakening, Lord, can result in worldwide evangelism, touching the world for Christ one more time. And that, Lord, is what we pray for. Send revival to this church, to our lives personally, most importantly, Lord, to this country. We ask that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Give the Lord a good hand. And give Brother Rick a big hand. God bless you. We appreciate you coming today. We're honored to have you. You know, it, it was even hard. I don't know about you, but, but, but he was so strong on some things. It was even hard for me to say amen to even in church. Can you imagine talking like, like this in a culture that hates the Bible? Will you pray for him as he tries to go and, and across America and what he does? He's one of our missionaries. We support him every month. We're honored to have you. Give him one more big hand. We love you, Brother Rick. Thank you for being here. As we close today, you know, the Bible says that those that preach the gospel live from the gospel. He's a man of God. And if you'd like to give an offering towards him just to say thank you and we love you and believe in you, I'll leave my Bible here. It'll all go towards him. There'll be an usher at the back door. If you need to use your debit card, there's a machine in the lobby. Just write Brother Rick on it. Listen, I love you. Thanks for being here. Hope, hope to see you. There's a book table out front of his books, and uh, we'll see you at the car show. God bless you. Thanks for coming today.